get by Benning. Darnell Nurse left it in the corner, gets up center. Perry scoops. Orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to the Forever Mighty Podcast. Uh, we got a uh, kind of a quick show uh, here, just a few hits. We're going to talk uh, Isaac Lindstrom signing uh, his new extension, two-year deal, $1.8 million per uh, with the Ducks. Talk a little bit about uh, the Matthew Kachuk situation, how that was resolved, uh, and a few other things. And then the majority of the show is going to be like the next, I guess, 40, 45-minute second half of this is our interview with Scott Wheeler from The Athletic to review the draft, look at some of the Ducks' top prospects from the 2021 draft in Mace McTavish, Olin Zellweger, Sasha Pastrov, how their years went, and, and a quick hit on Zegris and Drysdale and how they went and what their, their season was like. So that was a lot of fun uh, to hop on with, with Scott there. I mean, it's always great. I think we've had him on at least once every year since we've done the podcast, or at least the last four years. I think 2019 might have been the first year we've done it, but every time we've had him on, it's been great. Yeah, no, he was he was awesome. Uh, you know, I apologize to everybody that it wasn't your standard uh, three-hour draft Forever Mighty podcast. I had some some uh, what do you call it scheduling issues, and you know, it's three hours ahead for for you and him. So I uh, I crimped our time a little bit there, yeah. but the last we appreciate thing, him taking the time to talk with the us. The last thing we need to do is expose somebody from the outside to a, a three hours of us talking about everything. <laughs> But what we came on the show to talk about, so we we stretched it even. Past, we, I think we were supposed to aim for about thirty, thirty-five. We still we still managed to stretch it to about forty-five minutes for you guys. So, uh, Scott, how do you feel about Philadelphia? Yeah. Oh no, no. This oh man, I had a question for that that interview, uh, and we never I asked it. it. I, I just realized we it. forgot it right now. Uh, Dustin Brown getting a statue for the Kings. Oh man, that was I mean, that was gonna be great. I I, if, I don't know if I want to dive into this now because I know I want to talk to Pat and Jay about this, but we have to talk about it because that could be months from now before they both jump on the show with us. I mean, they're both dead, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah for what everybody says, uh, we have them kidnapped in in a basement somewhere, so we might as well talk. About yeah, it. um, I, man, we talked about it offline before we hopped on to the interview and then to record this. I I, I it's just amazing. <laughs> It's baffling to me. I genuinely like they're gonna put him out there in front of the Staples Center with Wayne Gretzky, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and Shaq and Magic Johnson. (laughs) They're gonna put Dustin Brown in the same world as like Dustin Brown is significantly the least interesting. Like Does Luke not have a statue? Luke, it's Gretzky, it's Robitaille, uh, Kobe, Shaq, Magic, Kobe, Shaq, Magic. I th- yeah, I think somebody else, and then Oscar De La Hoya okay. has it too. So wow, wow, um, Dustin Brown. Like yeah, Dustin Brown is now those guys. <laughs> Fucking ridiculous. I have no problem with them. We talked about this before. I have no problem with them retiring yeah. his jersey. That's a guy you retire the jersey for. He's going to spend his entire career with the team, captain for two Stanley Cup runs. That's fine. He doesn't have 750 points. He is career points. He is not going into the Hall of Fame. 
why are you giving him a statue? And as I said to you, you have five, six years from now, you're going to have three guys that you could easily give a statue to instead of him in Kopitar, Quick, and Dowdy. What the fuck? Yeah, I, I don't know, man. And like even he had good playoff years in their two Stanley Cup wins, 20 points in 20 games in the first one, 14 in 26 in the second one. So, you know, it wasn't bad, but I, like he had 49 Ooh. career playoff points in 92 playoff games. Like he was not a key contributor to their cup win. He was a good he, part of it. He was a big what? part of it. I'm not going to. He was a meaningful yes, part. Yes, he played he his role. He was a two-way yeah. player. He was a very but strong player. I don't right? Like, you. that's the thing. But that's the thing. It's the statue. Again, put that number in the Raptors, man. That's cool as shit. I dig it. But, like, the degree to which he just, he had one 30-goal season. Yeah. One 30-goal season. Which is, it sets the president's Brian now. Brian Getzloff had more 30-goal seasons than that. It's like, it's. That's it just sets the precedence that now, like, if Brown gets a statue, it's just going to be a joke, right? Like, if Brown gets a statue, okay, now Kobe's getting a statue, Doughty's getting a statue, Quick's getting a statue. It's just, it's unreal. I, I made this joke on Twitter. I'll make it again here. I, this means Andrew Bynum gets a statue now, and I personally think that's beautiful. <laughs> Hopefully they do the picture of him with the two sorority girls at UCLA on his shoulders while he's out for back injuries. Do you ever hear that story? I did not know. Oh, dude. So he was out, like, during the season. Like, he was out injured. Yep. And, like, during that time, there, like, this picture emerged of him at a frat house at UCLA with these, like, two sorority girls sitting on his shoulders. And it's just like, dude, you, you literally can't play basketball right now because your back is <laughs> fucked up. I know that both of those girls combined maybe weigh 100 pounds, but this isn't yeah, it's the best. not the idea. best look, man. Come on. Uh, I, I hope the uh, Dustin Brown statue looks like that Ronaldo statue. I don't remember where it was at, but it's just like <laughs> if you haven't if you haven't seen it, the Portugal. Yeah, I don't. Oh, man, I don't oh. remember what the statue was for. But if you just look up Ronaldo statue, and you'll see, and then just look at a picture. Like I hope it looks like that, just completely butchered or something. Just that would be great. But man, like, we, we could probably talk about Dustin Brown and the statue forever. I, it's forever going to be a joke for me. It's ne- never uh, not going to be. It's going to yeah, be like the, the Nashville banner joke. Like, it's now going to be the King statue It joke. actually yeah. is. Honestly, shout out to Nashville. The banner jokes are retired. Now we're making statue jokes about oh, LA. Nashville. We made a couple banner jokes on social media the other day with the, you know, good transition into our first topic. Screw Isaac Lundersham. We'll talk about him later. It's because we're professionals. <laughs> the uh, Predators apparently stole Nino Niederreiter right, from, right out from underneath us, thanks to Roman Yossi. Uh, an article in Switzerland came out um, about Nino Niederreiter signing with the National Predators f- two by four, or I guess we have four million for two years. He was a guy that we really wanted. No, it was two by four. Yeah, right? I, I was just trying to see if four million a year for I, two I, years. I, I couldn't. I thought if I said two by four, people would think it'd be a two million by four. So I had to specify, but in my own head about that one. But I don't know no. what I'm saying right now. You're uh, fine. He's making eight million. Apparently, this I think this was last week. When he went to bed Wednesday night, thinking he'd be an Anaheim Duck. I don't know what the contract was. I'm sure it was roughly similar, maybe an extra extra like year same. at less or the same, something like that. Um, he was going to be an Anaheim Duck. Went to bed, went to sleep. That's fine. Then he gets a call from I think it was a uh, Roman Yossi. Is he got he got Roman a call Yossi. from her, a text from or whatever, and asked him, hey, like what's going on? Where are you going? What's the plan? Nino says he's going to Anaheim. 
He's happy about it, ready to make his decision. Yossi says, hold up. That's not happening. How much do you want? I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk to my guys. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to our guys here. How much do you want? So I, I guess the amount was four or whatever. Nino put in how much he wanted. Yossi went to his guys. And then the next morning, Nino Niederreiter is a member of the National Predators. I could have done without reading that article and just never known that that happened. <laughs> I would have rather just assumed that, hey, he picked Nashville and he signed in Nashville. Because there's a lot of people, myself included, and a lot of people on Twitter uh, that wanted of the free agent players left that Nino Niederreiter would be a very good fit for the mm-hmm. Ducks, a guy who's scratched 20 goals a few different times, a big, powerful winger who can you know, grind it up on, up on the boards. Like he's a, he's a good fit for what the Ducks – don't have right now um, and, and a player you could play with a Trevor Zegris or you know on the the opposite wing of a Troy Terry or something and it would be a, it'd be a nice fit be, you know good cheap option to get to the, the salary cap floor the Ducks still need 4.4 million to get there so this would have got you right pretty close to doing that and he's a bona fide uh, depending on how you want to look at it like he's a bona fide top nine top yeah. six forward especially on this team what he brings is a sense of stable offense, and like you said, he plays a style of game that kind of meshes well with some of the people that we already have in the organization. He's a bit of a, a trigger man, he plays on the boards and things like that, so um, he's just a guy that it, it, it made a lot of sense, but for all the reasons that it made sense for him to come to Anaheim, it made just as much sense for him to yeah. go to Nashville, a team that's closer to competing. He gets to play with his buddy, you know what I mean? Like, it clearly... like. Roman Yossi isn't convincing him if they don't get on. Like, they're clearly yeah. friends. Um, the timing of it just kills me, and, though, man. Like, the fact yeah, that no, he was it's, just, it's just there. It's a kick he in the nuts. just about there. And I'm, listen, whether they, whether that's actually how it went down or, you know, there was conversations beforehand about where you're going. And um, it, it is a bit, of a, it's a bit of a kick in the nuts to, to know that you could have had him. He didn't come here. Again, it's not going to make or break the Ducks. Um, to not have Nino nope. Niederreiter, it's not going to change anything. It just would have been fun to have a player like that. The the thing I, I pull myself away from and look at and say it, it's a good sign is that the Ducks had convinced him, right, up until that mm-hmm. freak circumstance that, you know, a really good friend, fellow countryman of, of the player says, hey, no, come here and, and strikes up a deal for him, and it just makes sense for him. The fact that the Ducks were the team that originally had convinced him, maybe over Nashville before Yossi got involved, to come to Anaheim, be a part of what they're building here, be a key player, that's at least enticing, and, and it makes you feel a little bit better at this, about the situation that Verbeek was able to you know, go out to a player like that who was probably a heavily sought-after free agent and said, hey, we, you know, you come to Anaheim, this is what we're going to give you, this is the, the what we're building here, and he said yes. So I, I, I hold on to that a bit, and now I just hate Roman Yossi just a little bit more and the natural predators just a little bit more, but... I'll be cheering for for Nina Ryder because at one point he did pick the Ducks. And I I can't fault the decision, man. If you get your best friend reaching out to you, say, hey, come here, we'll match the deal, and he gets it done, what do you do at that point? Do you say no? (laughs) I mean, uh, look, if you have the opportunity to go play with Ryan Johansson, obviously you have to. Okay, see, now I'm doing it. I'm not going to do that. Uh, no, but honestly, I, you know, I, like you said, everything you said is exactly right. The money didn't seem like it was going to be much different one way or the other. The role is probably the similar as far as, uh, you know, time on ice, power play looks up out. Wow. Power play looks, things like that. It's more of, uh, you know, Nashville's just closer to being a contending team than Anaheim is. And, and that's kind of all there is to it, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you get to go be competitive with your buddy instead of, hanging out at the beach to, you know, score 20 goals uh, up until April and then never have to play hockey. 
you know, I get it. It's it's a it's an easy decision to make. Um, it it would have been, and with 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 the the caveat that obviously with some of the defensive names out there still that uh, defensive with some of the defensemen that are still out there there can that can always change but it does feel like it would have been a real perfect cherry on top to what was a surprisingly productive free agency period for anaheim uh you know i mean you basically walk away with a second line that's not bad and you know it sounds like it wouldn't have cost you much more than 15 million dollars at max you know what i mean uh, like per yeah, year, yeah, I think it would have been twelve point right? seven five or three something, like, which is not not bad yeah. at all. And yeah. the only long term so, deal know, would have been Strom because Vitrano and Nied- mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming Niederreiter would have been a two, but it could have been a three. You're looking at you know both on threes or Vitrano on the three and Niederreiter on a two. Like that's not bad at all. No, and none of those guys are going to prohibit young guys from stepping up. And they are still at a time, at the same time, good enough to very well, very much hold their place down in the lineup until Anaheim's, you know, young players really step yeah. into their own. So it would have been great. It's not the end of the to world. To hit on two out of three, uh, um, I still think it's it, it's good for Pat Verbeek to sit there like and look, okay, you, you know, Vertrano is what it is. Like there was probably a lot of suitors after him, but to convince Strom to come to Anaheim, I'm sure there was a lot of teams that were in playoff spots and it seems like he really wanted to come here. That is a win in a recruitment sense for Anaheim. Again, to go Absolutely. to Nina Ryder, who you know, outside of the very, very top free agents available was an attractive option for a lot of teams and to at one point have secured that and, and had him say okay to coming to Anaheim. Like those are wins as a first year GM to be able to attract those players to what you're building here and, and be able to bring them to Anaheim. Whether it is, you know, you're giving them an extra year or you're paying them a little bit more money. Whatever it is to do that, you convince them to come here and be a part of it. So I give him some credit for that. But yeah, he's gotta get he's gotta get creative now because Nino was Probably the, the the last option available, maybe Evan Rodriguez, maybe a Phil Kessel um, in free agency to go and do things. And there was an article that the Ducks put out uh, interviewing Pat Verbeek, and he said you know, he was looking at adding another forward and a D. And at the time, Nino would have been that put that forward, and mm-hmm. that they're looking at the free agent market before the trade market. So now we're getting into that time is unless Rodriguez or Kessel really are the options that you want to go with in FA and you want to bring them in. We're now going to have to shift into that trade market because they are going to add another Ford. I don't see how they don't, um, and they are four point four million dollars under the cap floor, so they've got to do something. So it's it'll be interesting to see where they go now because that that definitely is a, a bit of a pivot. I'm sure they thought they had him and they were moving on to focusing on the defense target, and now back to square one, having to add another Ford again. Yeah, I um, you know I, I don't think it'll be very hard. I think uh, at the very least they can take on a boat anchor. Um, you know, there's got to be more than a few bad contracts in the NHL. It's the NHL like they 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 can't be helped. People love to give guys bad. Deals. I saw a Voracek uh, rumor today, not for Anaheim, but that if Columbus wanted to move Voracek, it was going to cost them a first round pick and a top prospect. I mean, on that, yeah, yeah, oh, shit. Are you kidding me? I would love that. I would, you know, look, Jacob Voracek uh, would be hilarious because it would mean uh, Anaheim could very reasonably have a year where three different forwards hit 40 assists. Hilarious. Uh, But no, I mean, I think, 
you know, uh, Ryan Strom and Frank Petrano both played in the Eastern Conference Final. Uh, Nino Niederreiter played into the second round. Like, it can't be discounted, like you said, that that is a very clear win that Anaheim even got into the room with all of those guys, let alone walked out with two of them. Um, I think that's huge. I think it says a lot uh, about, if nothing else, Pat Verbeek's ability to communicate his vision and his expectations uh, to free agents, uh, which is always a, a very encouraging thing. Um, you know, and like you said, now he's got to change gears a little bit and stuff. We uh, we avoided arbitration with Isaac Lundstrom. He comes in two years, three point six million total, so one point eight a year. It seems like an actual payout. It's a dead money split. So um, it's a good deal. You know, uh, yeah, it's a perfectly fine deal. I, there's no problem with it. Um, you know, I think it came in like a couple hundred thousand under what. The evolving hockey twins had him at. I they, think they were like uh, two point one or two point two. Is I think what they had. Yeah, him at, so it's not bad. You had it, and then Eric Stevens had it in the article about the the deal as well. Um. So yeah, I mean, you know, they got about four and a half million dollars they got to spend or find, you know, cap hit in, which again isn't going to be all that difficult, I don't think. Uh, and so now it, it becomes, I guess, in a sense, about what you. What are you trying to get with that money, yeah. right? Because they could go out and, you know, do a – they could go sign Kessel and Subban to matching two and a half, three million dollar deals or some shit, and that's it. Like, that's it right there. You're done. You don't have to do anything else. Yeah. You can see where they all fit in. No big deal. Um, but like you said with Borachek, what if they want to pick up another pick? What if, you know, they want to try to stock a couple late firsts or early seconds or something like that and go get some of these uh, prospects maybe that after this year, uh, you know, every year there's a draft. It's not really stupid, but like every year that there's a draft, guys just kind of lose their spot by nature, you know? And so maybe you can go out and find someone from that 2018, 2019 draft who, you know, maybe just got shuffled around a little bit in the last couple of years and, and see if you can walk out of there with, uh, you know, maybe a, a guy who hasn't gotten a fair shake just based on numbers. So it, it'll be interesting. I think it'll tell us a lot about what he he expects this year to look like as much as we kind of feel like we already have an idea. Uh, you know, I think going out and getting like Lucic in a pick would be very different than something even similar to the Dadnov deal, right? Where you're still bringing in a guy who's going to step into your top six if you go out and get a Dadnov. Yeah type player. So. Yeah, I, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what he does. I, like, he hinted in that article, in that interview, that for, at least on defense, they're avoiding the veterans and recognizing the age curve that, you know, they want a guy who's going to come in on a shorter term who can eat minutes, and you, he doesn't really expect a veteran to, or really want a veteran player to come in and play 20 to 25 minutes a night. So I think for them defensive side of things there's not many options left in free agency unless you think pk subin is a guy who can still eat minutes right sorry i want to go back to what you said real quick are you saying that you don't think he he wants a veteran or that he doesn't think there's any veterans available because to me what i read was we need to go get somebody who can do who can eat minutes for us but i don't really like the guys that are available yeah let at more so than 
I don't want to give it to someone older. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. Going back and reading it, it's somebody available at the time. So you said I want to find somebody that's able to make up some minutes. So I'm not exactly sure there's anybody out there at this time that's a veteran and can provide something on the back end yet. So yeah, I think I think it is right now. But that that breaks the question of we've talked PK Subban a decent amount, 33 year old, played. 18 minutes last year, right? So Subban, does he kind of fall out of that conversation then? Anton Strahlman probably falls out of that conversation then. Those are the top two. You know, Keith Yandel's available. Those, Chara, like the the top defensemen available, Chris Russell, Jack Johnson, Andy Green, they're all 34, 35 plus. Are those guys out of the conversation then? If he's saying the guys available right now on the veterans, we don't think they could do that. So that leaves, like you said, John Klingberg, who played 22 minutes a night on average, um, is the only defenseman outside of Strawman available that played over 20 minutes a night. And again, like we had said, Strawman seems like he's out of that conversation. So if you're going to get a defenseman right now in free agency who isn't, you know, fits that profile of what Verbeka said that is available right now, he would be the guy. Other than that, I imagine we're going to see the defenseman coming in by trade if it's not John Klingberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the forward is to the opposite side of things. I, I think personally, Kessel and, and Rodriguez are the two better options left if you're looking at better than Sonny Milano, right? Like, of, mm-hmm. of guys that are... And then Danton Heinen's the other one, but again, he's right on par with uh, with Sonny Milano. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they approach both of these now that we knew Nino was the solution, and now you've got to pivot and go somewhere else. They've got the time. There's no rush to do this. There's a million different avenues you can take to explore this, like you said, bringing on bad contracts, going out and getting a... You know, a taking advantage of a team, let's say, like the Islanders, who are apparently pursuing Kadri and going and getting a player like Bolivier, who or Bovillier, sorry, who the Ducks have been interested in in the past. Maybe that's a move you go and take. So there's plenty of different avenues that they could go. We've talked about this at nauseum uh, about, you know, the different approaches to, to the Ducks offseason and acquiring players. But, again, it, it will be interesting to see where they pivot now with that whole Nino situation going the way it did. Yeah, I, um, you know, the the forward thing is interesting because I think Evan Rodriguez and Phil Kessel, like you said, are the two that make the most sense. But I also think, like, uh, I wonder to what extent, uh, more specifically Phil Kessel than Evan Rodriguez, but, like, do they match with what, you know... Um, for Beak has explicitly stated he wants, right? Which is kind of that compete level and that, 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 that kind of physicality or, or, or grittiness kind of a thing. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, know I don't want to call, <laughs> I don't want to call Kessel soft because I don't think that's fair. Like he's a professional athlete. Like he had an iron man streak for God's sakes. Like he clearly, you know what I'm able to tough through some shit, but like, he just like, he doesn't play that kind of game. Right. It's just not the way yeah. that he kind of gets down, and so I, I, you know, it's tough to say lazy because I don't I, I just, think it's lazy. But from what you've right. heard from former players of, and former teammates of his, is it doesn't seem to fit in with one what Dallas Aikens expects from this team, and two what Pat Verbeek seems to expect from this team is that like you're going to come in, you're going to work every day as the same as all these guys. You're going to be in the gym, you're going to be getting it done. From what we've heard from from Phil Kessel is that's not always the case. I mean, he's an extremely talented player. He had a great year last year. Uh, I think it was 52 points. 
but does he fit the character and right. the commitment and the compete level that you want from a guy that you're going yeah, to this the, locker Yeah, just the personality profile, right? Yeah. Like, because I, because you're 100% right in what you're talking about, but it also kind of like, and I said it too, is it just, I don't want to make it seem like we're shitting off Del Castle because one, that's a stupid fucking, you know, trope and all that shit. But like, it, it's just about fit. It's about makeup. You know, he seems to be just more laid back, right? Like, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons it didn't work in Toronto. It's not that he wasn't good. Like, obviously, it's Toronto, and it's ridiculous. But, like, I think his just kind of easygoing kind of public vibe at the very least just, like, rubs people the wrong way. And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily gel. So it it makes a lot of sense as far as, like, on ice. But, you know, like you said, from the makeup point of view, it doesn't seem to be a match. Maybe Evan Rodriguez is a little bit more. Maybe Evan Rodriguez is willing to take a little bit more term or you know what i mean like maybe he would be willing to take like two by two and a half as opposed to like one by three or something like that maybe have that extra year of security know that he can get moved at any point obviously if he needs it um it'll be curious but so you mentioned the islanders and this is just a really stupid thing and i just want to ask you would you trade neck the 2024 first for matthew barzal yeah, I think so. I I mean, the, my my reservations with Barzello are the same with Zegers in the sense that like I don't think either of them long term could be centers in the NHL level. So then you're acquiring him as a winger and not as a center. Does that affect the price or whatever? But if the price is set as the twenty twenty four first, are you really still on this? I don't think Trevor Zegers is going to be. I a think center? he's more center than Barzell, but I, I, just in the sense that like I think Matt, I don't think Matt Barzell is going to. Do play his best as a center at the National Hockey League. So I would 100% bring him in as a winger. I think he's a dynamic player. Um, I, I, I feel like he hasn't been insulated well enough in New York to really show off his talents of what he can do. Like he, you know, every, everything's kind of. And it's not like it's gone downhill. He's not a bad player at 59 points in 73 games last year. But that rookie year of 85 points and 22 goals in 82 games, he has not got quite back to that yet. And a lot of that. Yeah, and he also. Yeah, go. Was his first year John Tavares' last year? Uh, yeah, yeah, eighty-four points in eighty-two games for Tavares that year. Okay, yeah. So like, that's the other thing about yeah. it, right? It's like Barzal got put into a weird spot just based on the fact that John Tavares left, which again has nothing to do with him, but it just creates a very weird context where. You know, now it's, oh, my God, Barzal's our savior because screw John Tavares. We don't need him. We still have Matt Barzal. It's like, no, you you need more than one, guys. You, you definitely need more than one. Um, you know, and, and so it would be interesting, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, no, I don't I don't think he's he's underperformed or underwhelmed by any stretch of the imagination. I just think the team's kind of withered around him. And on top of that, even while they were competitive, they were competitive because they were a Barry Trotz team. Right. So you're looking at Sorokin being the backbone of that team, Pelican and Pollock being the backbone of that team. Matthew Barzal obviously is a big part of it as far as, you know, being one of the the main guys, along with uh, Anders Lee, who can generate any kind of real offense on that team. Uh, but it's just it's just a weird context. But I don't know why. It was just something I was thinking about. The no, it, 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 it's but, interesting because you think of, like, on the right, you know, Troy Terry is going to be there and you, you hope it's going to be some. Like, I think Troy Terry and his skill set fits really well with Trevor Zegers, and we saw that. And Terry's not the greatest shooter, but he know like he's just knows how to put the puck in the back of the net, right? And I think 
Then pairing a player like Matt Barzell on the right with someone like Mason McTavish down the middle, like there's there's something about that. They're like, okay, that's that's enticing. You know, a player with the, the skating and um, mobility and, and edge work that Barzell has and the playmaking ability to set up a guy like Mason McTavish, it's it's intriguing for sure. I mean, yeah. any chance you can get to acquire a player like Matt Barzell would be interesting. And I think at that point, if you're Anaheim, where you hope to be after the 2023 draft, like moving that 2024 first for Matt Barzell, you hope is is worth it at that point. And it would be, it would 100%. it would be you know again if we 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 have the interview coming up and any player who comes to that first round it can be a 60 to 70 point player in the NHL level that's worth it at that point you know, most of the guys that you would hope to get in any draft if they turn out to be a Matt Barzell you're extremely happy with that i think where they ended up getting him at 16th overall the Islanders are extremely happy with what they got from Matt Barzell with that pick because there's a lot of guys who get drafted in that range just ask the the Boston Bruins from that same draft that uh, it does not always does not always pan out. So yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Uh, but yeah, man, like I'm I'm super intrigued to see what uh, what Pat Verbeek does in the the upcoming couple weeks here because we're getting to a point now where it's not like something has to be done for sure, but there's an interesting pivot that now has to happen because the one move you had to kind of get you next closer to getting over the line fell apart in, in Niederreiter. So I want to see how he kind of shifts from this and, and what comes out of it and, and you know, whether it's through a trade or free agency. Um, I started, in my mind, it's starting to lean more or a little bit closer to trade for both of those positions if you're looking at a defenseman and forward. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's, you know, the longer it goes on the the more likely it becomes that it's going to be a trade just by virtue of there being less players to sign it just becomes more likely and it changes kind of what uh you know from a fan's perspective in anaheim kind of what you're looking at what you're looking to evaluate right how you're kind of trying to feel on it um you know i mean something that would have uh definitely gotten them over uh the salary floor would have been a uh, nine and a half million dollar contract to matt kachuk uh but that obviously didn't go the way it went and i think me and you want to have a an entire separate two-hour conversation just on that trade well we will because we have a we have a couple of shows planned that we're gonna we're gonna talk about it from a flames and panthers perspective where we can kind of talk about it as a more of like an around the NHL picture rather than for a Ducks focus, but I think like we can definitely talk about it in in terms of Anaheim missing out on him and what it would have taken to get him. I like we talked about it endlessly throughout the season. Even uh, what you know, one of our favorite players in, in the entire league to to acquire would be Absolutely. would be Matthew Kachuk. But I I, I think it, you can't sit back and be disappointed. Like I, I think you can sit back at the at the Debrinket trade and be like, yeah, like. That's one they yeah, could have done because it was for futures and it made sense. This one you can't you can't sit back if you're any team but Florida, you can't sit back and, and be like, oh man, like that sucks. We could have beat that. Like, you can't. Like it was Jonathan Huberto was the main piece of that. Like n- nobody was beating that. Yeah, I think somebody had mentioned to me like the rumored deal out of out of St. Louis was like Tarasenko Scandella in a first. Like even that doesn't come close to Huberto Uyghur in a first. Well. I heard the other one was they got offered Robert Thomas. That one would be interesting if if they got him. Which but again, yeah, we've, we've uh-huh. weighed the merits of acquiring players like Thomas and Kiru during the the uh, Hockey Canada investigation and everything going on, and whether that makes sense for a team to have those guys 
at the centerpiece of, of a deal. But like I, I sit back as a Ducks fan and look at that trade and say, you know what, like it sucks. You would love Kachuk, but there's nothing you could do. Like you're not mm-hmm. beating that unless you're throwing Trevor Zegers in, right? To to com- compete. Troy Terry is the yeah. only the only guy that you can argue, right? It matches what they're getting in Huberto, and again, matches is a very who fits the yeah, same idea, which is a win yeah. now playmaking yeah. winger, right? That's what you're looking at. And the age difference, right? Maybe it makes up for the fact that uh, Terry put up like 67 points and Huberto put up like 135,000 yeah. or whatever he did. All of them are secondary assists, don't tell Alan Walsh. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I mean it's uh, the closest you can get at Anaheim is like Troy Terry, Comtois, and then you're giving up Cam Fowler? Like, yeah, it would be like Comtois, like, Fowler, is, and you're 2024 first. But just, even then, like, it yeah. just. Yeah, there's just nothing there. So I think, like you said, from an Anaheim perspective, you can feel pretty good about missing on this in so much as you didn't miss because you didn't get it done. You missed because you didn't have what they wanted. That's the thing about a trade, right, is it takes two sides to agree. And if if you aren't able to give the other team what they're looking for, then you just don't have a match. And that's the thing I love about this trade, too, is it's on trend with the way we've discussed the Debrinket and Fiala trades is – Everybody getting on Pat Verbeek for not being in on it or not, you know, poning up a, enough to compete it and putting up these comparable trades. Well, the Ducks should have given this, 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 and this. The same situation. It's the same situation for all three of those trades in the sense that Chicago, the best piece that they wanted there was number seven pick. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to extremely go above and beyond and give them way more assets to make the difference between seven and ten, there they wanted right. seven to get Kevin Kurczynski. The Ducks had no no chance essentially because the best piece. There was they wanted the highest pick they could get. The Fiala deal. Right. That would have to be a trade that would made after yeah, nine. Yeah. It's basically the only way that trade. Yeah. Would and and I, you're having to then, you know, it's 10 and then, well, you know, a lot more additional pieces to beat the fact the difference mm-hmm. between 10 and 7 because they wanted their guy. And, you know, the, the Blackhawks GM, I think it was Kyle Davidson, right? I think, got yeah. on uh, after the draft and said, listen, like, this is the guy we wanted. 100% they wanted mm-hmm. Kevin Kuczynski. So they wanted the highest pick possible. The Ducks couldn't get that done. We've already talked about that. The Kevin Fiala trade, same situation. Minnesota really wanted as high up in the first round as they could get, in like late first round, and Brock Faber. They just really liked him that much, and for good reason. They watched a ton of him this year play in the same state down the road from them. They got to watch a lot of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, you, you know, you could say, oh, well, what about Hellison? What about this guy? And what about that guy? Well, they just really liked that guy and how he would fit in their team. And it's the same with this situation to a higher level because Huberto is an exceptional player. But the best piece that any team could offer for Matthew Kuchuk was Jonathan Huberto of all the offers that were out there. There's no question because if you're Calgary and, and clearly, you know, a couple things we speculated is are they going to get futures? Are they going to rebuild? Are they going to want to compete? Well, clearly they wanted to compete. So that took Anaheim right. well out of the running. And like you said, then Terry becomes the best piece. Well, Terry's a great player, but you're not scratching the surface of what Jonathan Huberto provides to a competitive team right now. Um, so right. there was no team gonna, that was going to come into the mix there and be able to offer a player like Jonathan Huberto. And, you know, Uyghur's an underrated piece of that because he's a great player. And then the 2025 mm-hmm. first is just, you know, kind of icing on the cake for the Flames to be able to have another asset to either draft a player when they might have to rebuild if Huberto and Uyghur don't come back or another trade asset to move out for for you know another player to make this team better so again the same i've long rambled long-winded 
kind of explanation there, but for, for you, it's it's hard to get mad at the Ducks for all three of those trades because ultimately the team went with whatever the best asset was. You could not beat it. Yeah, they had specific things in mind that Anaheim wasn't able to provide, right? Because even if you wanted to say, what is it, 22 was yeah. the Ducks pick? Um, 22 and Hellison, like, okay, but so now what you've got is a downgrade in both assets. So what is the third thing that makes up for that difference? Is it a second? Is it another prospect? Is it Max Comtois, right? So like, yeah. And does that make a difference have... to Minnesota, right? Like how much do they value exactly. that difference between right. – Faber and Hellison, how, yeah. Exactly. How much are you willing to pay to cover that drop? And how much do they want to cover that drop? Exactly right. It takes two sides. So, you know, again, you get into these conversations about like, all right, well, what is the point of giving up all these assets, right? Even if it is a guy like Kevin Fiala, who's a good player, he doesn't quite fit where we're at, right? We're not at that same point that LA is, Um you know, and, and the same thing with Huberto. Like, they just, they, they, they don't have anybody that's, if, I mean, look, if nothing else, Jonathan Huberto, you know, he's an all-star. He's a fucking heart candidate. Like, he was in the scoring title race. Like, he, like, there's nobody like that anywhere. Like, it's just the idea that that's the guy that you're going to get from Matthew Kachuk. You have to it's take the 100-point player like for said, a 100-point player. That, that, there, yeah. There's not many other guys you could, like, have guys available <clears throat> That you could have got that done to say, listen, we dealt our right. hundred point player for another one, and to make up for the age difference, we also got Uyghur and we got a first round pick. If they don't yep. resign, we can yep. talk about you know we'll we'll talk about this on the other show the if it's a win for Calgary or not if those guys come back. That's a yeah. separate issue though, right? But it, on the it's, surface it's a... for what you got, taking out those equations. Kachuk as a player for Hubert Uyghur in a first, like it's good value for Calgary if you want to stay competitive, which clearly they do. Right. And that's the thing, right? You can argue and quibble about the underlying logic. I'm not as big of a fan as other people is of the trade as far as the kind of decision-making process that goes into it for Calgary. But they made a decision that they wanted to stay competitive. You're not going to get better players than that. You know what I mean? The Jonathan Huberto and Mackenzie Weger. Like we talked about this, Mackenzie Weger steps in and it replaces Eric Goodbranson. Like significant huge. upgrade too. Yeah, yeah. And you know, losing Huberto or bringing in Huberto makes it a little bit easier losing Gaudreau. Now it hurts because Huberto was part of the Kachuk package. Yeah. But you know, we've talked about this again before that you can go out and add a guy like Nazem Kadri, and now you've basically stylistically replaced all three of them. You've replaced all your guys. Yep. You know, and and you've built a team that's a little bit more uh, immediately competitive. You've built a team that's um, going to play. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, just based on uh, the kind of ability yeah. that a guy like Nazem Kadri provides to separate your offense a little bit, right? Because I mean, Calgary was one line and a defense last year. Like that was fucking it. And you know, this this provides them an opportunity. You know, if you have. You know, if your first line is some is like Mangiapane, Huberto, and Lindholm, and your second line is built around Kadri and Toffoli, like that's not terrible. That's that's fine. You know, that's in a better spot than you're at right now. So, uh, you know, for what Calgary wanted, they I just like you said, like uh, we're repeating ourselves now, but there just wasn't a better version of it out there, and there's nothing Anaheim can do about yeah, that. But we're we're still gonna hear it because it's in any fan base, you're still gonna get that. That I understand people want. Frustration. Yeah, people want the Ducks to be competitive. I 
wanted that that trade to happen as much as anybody. Uh, but you, you have to be able to sit back and look at it and say, like, realistically, there was absolutely no way the Ducks got that done. And I know some people speculated, like, oh, well, it had to be Zegris and Drysdale. Like, I don't even think, like, that in, in a sense. Like, yeah, you can you can kind of assume that, you know, it would have cost Zegris and, and Drysdale and whatever. But, again, at the end of the day, Calgary was looking to compete now. And I don't even know if those assets match up with Huberto and Uyghur in the sense that if you want to compete now, like, listen, I love Trevor Zegris, and, and I think he's, he's he's going to be a great player for a very long time. But say it's Zegris Drysdale in the 2023 first. Does Calgary take that over Uyghur, Huberto in the 2025 first? I don't know, right? Like, because Uyghur and Why Huberto you... are significantly better than those two now, and Calgary wants to be good right. now. If they wanted to be good later, then that's a good, that's probably the best futures package you could offer. I wouldn't do it if I was Anaheim, but. That's the that's the whole argument here, and that's the other thing, right? The, the, I guess the thing to to really put the nail in the coffin is is there's a guy in Florida that if they wanted a futures package, they could have gone out mm-hmm. and gotten fucking Anton Lindell. Yeah. Like that's the guy if you're building a futures package in your Calgary, you're like, oh, this guy who's a two way center. He's a smart player, and he 100% looks like he's going to be a top six center in this league. Like, yeah, that's the guy I want. But again, that's drafting for four years from now, for three years from now, which is clearly – or trading for three or four years from now, which is clearly not what they want to do. And – oh, my God. I just had a thought run into my head. Oh, uh, it goes into – what we were talking about earlier about the Lundestrom and the Nick Suzuki thing and that whole, uh, as far as like, you know, the contract that Nick Suzuki is on right now, like, is it a good deal or a bad deal? And like, if you just look at his production and his level of play and things like that, it's a bad deal. But what that deal essentially is, is a bet that by the third, fourth year of that deal, Nick Suzuki is either going to live up to or exceed that deal. So, you're kind of hoping to overpay in the beginning to underpay in the long run. And that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a, a bad idea, but it is a value proposition that you're making. We're going, instead of maximizing $10 million right now, we are going to basically invest it into the future via this kid who we think can develop into being a number one center. And like, I, I don't have an issue with that, but exactly what you're saying with Trevor Zegers. Fucking, and, you know, you guys will hear Scott say this in a few minutes whenever we, we let you guys get there. Trevor Zegers isn't a top 30 player right now. You know what I mean? Like, I love Trevor Zegers. I I am optimistic I would give him the Ryan Suzuki, the Nick Suzuki contract tomorrow. Like, I, I am 100% there. He is, at this point, not a legitimate top six center in the NHL. He was a top six center on a bad team in the NHL. And that's not his fault. I'm not there. That's not a detraction from him. It's just, there's a difference between being a 21 year old prospect who's taking on an outsized role in a team and a 29 year old all-star heart caliber level player who is going to be an impact player for the next three years. It's just, they're completely different. And, um, I just, you know, I just think that matters a lot. And the Ducks, like you said, they didn't have anything that got there. Uh, but 
instead of I'll stop talking around it, how did you feel about the uh, Lundestrom extension? Yeah, I'm, I'm biting my tongue so hard not to talk about how shrewd of a move it was for Florida. And I got to save it for that other show. Bro, I just, I'm, I, yeah. I just want to talk about it so much, but how it extends their window and puts them in such a good spot. But I got to save it because we have a show that's going to be dedicated to that. Um, that uh-huh. Then we can talk about it for two hours because we probably will. Uh, but yeah, Isaac Lindstrom, I, I I like it, man. Like it's it is what it is. I think two years makes sense. We thought it'd be around two or three, like three being the very max of it. Um, it's right on par with what the Ducks did with Max Jones and with Troy Terry, um, rewarding them for good seasons. He deserved it. He earns it. And now it's like, okay, you made a little bit more. You've got two years to show us that you can take that next level, right? And I like that. I mean, you mm-hmm. go from your entry level, you accept the qualifying offer, you show up, you do well. You get a two-year deal at, at a significantly more money, and now it's from here on out. It's like okay, now show us what you can do to improve on that, and that will lead you to your next contract. And it's a very good linear path for Isaac Lindstrom to follow, an easy to follow path to say, "Listen, like they, here you go. I know you love that one, but uh, yeah, man, I, I, I think it's great. I, I, I love that he's back. It was kind of a foregone conclusion that he would eventually get signed, but." Um, I'm excited to see what he can do. Like I, I, I personally don't know if there's much more from here for Isaac Lindstrom. Right. If there's not, the two by one point eight is fine, right? Like that's again, that's what he's worth mm-hmm. right now. So to give him that right now and for two years and to figure it out in two years, if you want to keep him and continue on from there, it's fine with me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing that you said that I was, I was literally thinking it as you said it, which is. The Isaac Lundestrom thing is so odd because it's so clearly kind of the way draft develop sign works, where it's like we drafted him in the late first round. He takes a couple of years. He shows up for a quick flash. Oh, okay, we see what we got. And then he shows up, and it's like, okay, well, we think we have this. And then you're like, oh, okay, so we kind of have this. And then he has a year where it's like, all right, what do you want to do? And he's like, I'm taking the qualifying offer. I'm betting on myself. He has that step. He doesn't take a – you know, a monstrous, like, uh, P.K. Subban, Norris-level jump, yeah. right? Where it's just like, now it hurts that you didn't give me more earlier, yeah. right? But he made a jump, and he's rewarded with that jump with the two-year deal, with the $1.8 million salary each year. And it's also appropriately skeptical from the team side by going, we're not sure what you are because as much as we like what you were, we don't know how much of it's legit because you haven't been that guy yet. We think you can be that guy. Two line, uh, two way, third line center, chip in, you know, some depth scoring and, and be a big part of our penalty kill. But beyond that, we're not sure what you are. And then the same thing for Lundestrom. It's a very smart gamble on himself. Let me take two years, really give myself an opportunity to build from here. And we'll see what I can pull out of this going forward. And I, and I love it. I think it makes a lot of sense for both sides. I think it's, you know, I, it's weird because, like, anytime things go to arbitration, it always kind of feels like they could possibly be more tenuous than it really is. But, I mean, it just it just feels like such a logical kind of conclusion to the what is Isaac Lundstrom going to yeah. get. You know, I, I just think it takes everything into account. It, I mean, look, in two years, they'll probably have a better idea of what Nathan Gauthier is. And if if he's, uh, you know, he's that guy, because he's the same thing, right? He's a two-way third-line center. I think stylistically they have significant differences. But that's what you're looking at mm-hmm. is 
that third line guy who can go up, eat out, eat up some minutes, play responsibly, all that stuff. And at the end of this Lundstrom deal, you know, maybe they're like, all right, wasn't quite what we thought, so we'll trade him, let him walk, whatever you want to do. And uh, you see what uh, Gauthier has, or or you know, Ben Grew has, know, maybe or, yeah, some of those guys, Jack Perbix yeah. or any of these other guys. You know what I mean? Like, or oh, shit, the guys they haven't even drafted yeah. yet or signed yet. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, shit. At that point, maybe Ryan Strom's the third line center. You know what I mean? I, there's just it. It just makes a lot of sense. I just think everything Anaheim has done so far just makes sense, and it's kind of nice to just be comforted by. Yeah, it just makes sense. Yeah. Like everything just makes well, sense. And, and nothing, nothing in this off season, no, none of the signings they made, like nothing has put them in a bad spot. They were already in a good spot when you look at like the fact that before Stroman Vitrano signed that this contract for Isaac Lindstrom would have made him the third highest paid forward on the team kind of shows you like what comfortable space they are in in terms of their cap space. Yeah. And Adam Henrique makes the significantly the most and it's only for the next two years. Comtois was the one above it and it's only like 200 K more and he's an RFA at the end of next year. Um, you know, no, and then Jones and Terry are yeah. Five, nobody right? is signed. Well, nobody before Stroman Vitrano was signed was signed longer than the end of the twenty twenty three twenty twenty four season for forwards, other than Mason McTavish, who's on an entry level contract. Like it, it's a good, comfortable spot to be in. Like to say, okay, like we're starting our rebuild, and there's nothing bad here. There's really nothing bad on the books. Like say what you want about Cam Fowler's contract. I don't even think it's that bad. Like you can get mm-hmm. out of it. It's only four years from now, so it's not too bad. They're in a good spot. And to think now you've gone into the offseason and like the longest contract you have on the books now is is Ryan Strom for five years at five million. Like that's not even that bad of a deal if you had to get out of it. And obviously the hope is you don't and that he's a good piece of the team and is a valuable top nine contributor and then you're only paying him five at that point if everything pans out. So it's not too bad. And then yep. again for Toronto at three by three point six five is not bad at all. So you know, you've only still even with those signing, you've only got three players or four players, I guess, under contract past the 2023-2024 season. That's Strom, Vitrano, McTavish, and Fowler. And then if you want to include John Gibson in there as well. So they're in a good spot cap-wise. And obviously that will change next year when Zegris, Terry, and Drysdale sign extensions. And we, you know, come to us, signs an extension, and those contracts will uh, will go from there. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, with how it's gone. There's a few more moves to be made, but... I think we've we've seen the major stuff get done. Like Strom was the the major long term move, unless the Ducks go out and acquire somebody via trade or something like that. Yeah, I think just as much of what they did do that is the business of the summer is just as much what they didn't do. Right? Henrique is still here. Silverberg is still here. Fowler's still here. Gibson's still here. And and I'm not saying that all of those people, like all of those guys' names, were out there necessarily. But it's more of like. If you're really tearing this down, those are guys you take calls yeah. on. And, and, you know, and Silverberg's cooked, right? So if you want to take him out of there, that's fine. But if, you know, if you wanted to say, fuck it, we're going to put a second round pick in his pocket and send him out the door. Like, I, I it makes yeah. sense, right? And, and you could you could talk yourself into it. And there's no rush, too. Like, you can still, you can no, still and that's, do that. That's exactly yeah. right. For me, the fact that none, none, they haven't made any major moves. They just made a sequence of small logical moves or non-moves right keeping gibson for another year his contract gets shorter the whole thing you see what he has maybe he is back to being his guy or the team in front of the whole shit right it's just all the options are still on the table there's there's really nothing 
I mean, other than trading for Kachuk, trading for Fiala, like trading for Debrinket, no, there's nothing that was on the table at the start of the summer yeah. that isn't on the table now. And as much as we liked those guys for very legitimate reasons, they're all quality. There are going to be guys like that available in the next couple of years. It's just the way that this league works. Guys become available who shouldn't be, or guys ask out of places. I mean, it's just as kind of crazy that Jake DeBrusque is still in Boston as it is that he asked to be out of there to begin with. Like the and again, he's not the quality of player that those other guys, but we do find young players with offensive upside, they become available. Now, they're not always available often, but there's one or two of them every couple of years at the very least that teams are going to be willing to take calls on and, and move on yeah. from. So When you're in a more you know, comfortable I, I, position in the rebuild, too, to go out and acquire that, and you, you know exactly. what you have and what you don't have. And that's the tough part. We've talked about this with, with these trades for the Ducks, is they are still at a point that you don't know exactly what you have with these guys. There's... Right. Nine games for McTavish. There's no games in the NHL for Zellweger yet. No games for, you know, one game for Perot, one game for Tracy. You know, one season for, you know, good, great season for Zeke. It's a good season for Drysdale, but still one season for these guys. It is a tough move to say, okay, like, we are going to go out. One, you got to convince the player, but if you, let's say, for the sake of the argument, Kachuk wanted to come here. Is that the right move right now to go out and acquire him? I think I think you can make the right. argument both ways, but where they are when you don't know what you have with these guys, it is a very hard position to go out and say, yeah, we're going to do that. Um, and that's why it makes sense for Florida because you know what you have, right? You know where you're at. Mm-hmm. You know what your key parts of your roster are, and that's where you kind of slot a player like that in. And that's where you're waiting for the Ducks to get to that point before they make that move. When they know what they have, they know what the core of this team is going to be, and we can move out some of the pieces that we don't need right now to bring in that additional piece. So they'll get there two, three years down the road. Like you said, these guys in free agency, these players that are available in trades, they'll be there. Different players, but guys that can have that mm-hmm. same impact on your on your lineup. Yeah, 100%. You know, or, or And again, there are going to be guys that come into the team between then and now. <clears throat> that we're not planning on or expecting and 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 those guys could pop those guys could fall you know it could be the whole thing i mean everything is still on the table and i think for me uh you know even if you want to go back as far as activating the option in dallas aiken's contract the theme of the summer if anything right of the, of the pat verbigera has been flexibility right he didn't sign Lindholm and Manson and Raquel the long-term deals because he didn't want to make the time commitments. He didn't want to make the salary cap commitments necessarily. There was talk about Manson coming back, but it was a different understanding of what was going on. Manson had just won the cup. You know, these kinds of things, the dynamics are, are, are a little different in some ways. Um, but everything that Verbeek has done so far has been to just ensure that moving forward, He's not in any boxes. Yep. There's really nothing he's trapped in by. Everything has, has been about creating options as opposed to taking them away. And so I think if you're Anaheim, even if you want to say you're underwhelmed or, or frustrated or disappointed with the lack of certain moves being made, everything is, is encouraging and positive, I think, in, in, in when you really take the big picture in. Yeah. I'm a lot more disappointed if we come out of this offseason and we've signed Ricard Raquel to the deal that he got and maybe mm-hmm. not so much with Josh Manson but you know there is a there is a way to win. Well, but the, uh, it's yeah. fair. I think you're absolutely right. Like 
you know, I mean, if you keep all three of those guys, what are you? You're fucking yeah. nothing. You you just can't. The the idea. I mean, hell, the point of being able to re-sign Manson back in free agency is specifically that is it was still on the table. Even if you traded him, you hadn't completely lost him. There seemed to be an understanding pretty early on. As soon as the playoffs started, at least it felt like we were getting insiders saying things like, you know, there's talk that Manson and, and the Ducks could have a have a reunion. I mean, we even saw, I think it was maybe Friedman who said that there was talk about Manson coming back and wearing the captaincy, you know, being the captain in a post Getzloff era. Yeah. Like, and I'm sure it was discussed. Like, I'm sure it was a conversation that yeah, they had so with him. And yeah. It's, it's just about options. And I just really think everything that has happened so far has been positive. There's, there's nothing discouraging. Yeah. All right. We got to so, wrap it there because we promised you we'd be only 20 to 30 minutes. We are almost an hour as it usually goes. Um, God, we're so the if worst. you think it's over here, nope, you've got another 45 minutes, but it is our interview with Scott Wheeler from the athletic, our long awaited draft uh, review and uh, looking into kind of a prospect review too, looking into the seasons from McTavish, Zellweger, Pastuov, Zegers, Drysdale, those guys. So a lot of fun to have Scott on as always and, and talk those things with us. And uh, you know, hope you guys enjoy the interview and we will talk to you soon. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Forever Mighty Podcast. We are finally here with our draft review show. We've been waiting to get somebody on a little bit smarter than than the two of us to talk about uh, the, the, the how the draft went and who the Ducks got. Uh, I promise this one's not going to be three hours. We got Scott Wheeler here. I should mention that first from The Athletic. How's it going, Scott? <laughs> it's going well. It's going well. I was just mentioning before we hopped on, but this is kind of uh, ramping back up here after a week off. I've got... The Helenka Gretzky Cup next week, and then I'm off to Edmonton for 12 days for the World Juniors. So it's uh, there. There is no no sleep. The clock has turned, and 2023 is officially on the radar. Not much recovery time from yeah. from Montreal. <laughs> oh God, Montre- Montreal was outstanding. It was so good to just be back with. I mean, I consider almost all of my colleagues to be close friends in some way or another. So it was nice to just be back in person after two years at the at their studios down there in Secaucus, New Jersey. It was nice to be back on a draft floor. And I mean, I don't know if either of you have ever been to Montreal, but Montreal is one of my favorite cities. So it was uh, a lot of work, but also uh, a lot of late nights. It was it was a ton of fun. Yeah, a bit more rewarding than the last year, right, where you're kind of sitting at home and watching everything to to get back out and see everybody and just kind of experience that that atmosphere again. I'm sure that, like you said, it's just kind of a relief to get back to that. It's busy, for sure. Busier flying out there and everything, but it's it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. It was great. And uh, TBD on where it's going to be next year. I know they want it in Florida. They want it in Seattle. So uh, we'll see where it ends up. But uh, if it's either of those two, that's a win-win as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard, or was it, I don't know if it was the All-Star game or something, Nashville was up for for something. I don't know if it was the draft, but that yep. that would be a good one, too, to see them host something again. <laughs> I don't, if Nashville gets it before Anaheim, Anaheim fans are going to be unbearable when yeah. that whole thing is going on. Nashville's uh, one of the only, uh, Nashville's one of the only barns I haven't been to, so would love to get there. Oh, I, I've heard it's it's absolutely incredible. It's definitely on my list. I haven't been to many. To it, it's to. the one that I've been to of like three, and the other ones aren't the greatest. Been the Honda Center and then the Scotiabank Arena. So. Okay, calm down, <laughs> so. Edward. The Honda Center isn't good. Knock well, it off. It's Honda Center, Scotiabank Arena, and then you compare that to Bridgestone, and uh, it doesn't uh, doesn't quite match up. But 
All right. yeah. We are here to talk Ducks prospects, how they did at the draft. Uh, Scott, we spent three hours uh, per show doing our preview. We're, we're not going to keep you <laughs> that long. We went way too in-depth here. So for everybody listening, this is going to be much shorter and a lot more concise, which I'm sure you guys will enjoy. Uh, but the Ducks had eight picks in the draft. We're going to look and kind of focus more so on, on the first four, the two in the first, two in the second. They had number 10 where they took Pavel Minchukov from the Saginaw Spirit, and at number 22, they took Nathan Gauthier uh, from the Quebec Ramparts. Focusing on 10 with Minchukov, one of the top mm-hmm. defensemen available in the draft, really, I guess, outside of Nemec and, and Juracek. In your final rankings, you had him at 25. What do you like about him? What do you like about that pick for the Ducks? And where do you kind of see him fitting in in the future? Well, the appeal is just how confident he is out there. He's one of those kids who just feels like he can make any play he wants. He plays a very sort of attacking, ambitious, aggressive game offensively. Uh, loves to have the puck on his stick, loves to make plays. He can walk the line, but he can also sort of carry it in transition, lead the rush, walk off the line to sort of create into the slot. So there's a lot to like about his game uh, offensively. With the puck, he's he's a very confident kid. I think where my some of my reservations were and some of the reasons I had him kind of as the the fifth defenseman on my list rather than the third or fourth, which is kind of the range that they picked him in, Um just a little bit of reservations about his decision making uh some of that aggressiveness and that confidence just also as with with all kids who play that way kind of comes with some sloppiness as well uh he's going to misread some plays he's going to turn over some pucks that's just kind of what comes a little bit with his game uh he's also one of the oldest player the oldest first year eligible players at least in last year's draft so I think that played into my evaluation a little bit you contrast him against someone like Kevin Korchinski who went to Chicago Korchinski's nine ten months younger right so um that that was a part of it and then the the third piece if there was one in just in terms of some caution with him is that before last year and they played him a lot so he was always going to find success because of how much they played him last year but before last year he didn't have a tremendous track record. When they drafted him in the CHL import draft, he wasn't a kid that was sort of highly touted. He played a little bit for the national program, and uh, he was a member of a top program in the MHL, and all of that was true. Uh, but really wasn't like this, wasn't this crown jewel sort of first-round prospect and, frankly, hadn't really produced or created quite like you'd expect uh, of a player who did what he did last year. So last year was just this this swell of, of ground support for him. People really found out about him pretty early on in the season and got excited about what he had to offer. Uh, played right through into the CHL top prospects game in Kitchener and all that and played quite well there. So uh, there, it was just sort of a steady build. And at the midway point of the season, there was a lot of excitement about him after a couple of highlight reel goals, which I'm sure you guys have seen by now as well. Um but yeah, just the, I mean, the, the game offensively comes to him naturally. Uh, he's, he's also, he's got the body, he's got the stick. When, when he's really dialed in, he's a very, very good defender at both ends. But it's just tightening up some of the decision-making. Uh, he plays a little loose out there. I, I think that's the, the biggest thing for me. And, and still, frankly, 25th is, that, that, that should tell you that I'm very high yeah. on him. It's not... I think people often look at the 10 and 25 and say, oh, you're low on him. And that's just not the reality, right? I, I still think a player, and I wouldn't have a player ranked in that range if I if I didn't like him. Yeah, I, I was curious. Um, 
when you were talking about his decision making, how much of that do you think is the result of these some of these players? Because I think that's one of the things for me as an outsider that's the most interesting is some of the things that can separate the guys in that five eight range to the guys that kind of fall in that fifteen to twenty five range can be decision making. And how much of that do you think is attributable to them? being better than their peers and how much of that is just them kind of just having that kind of gambling mentality just kind of in their DNA. It's both. And I would add a third thing to that. A lot of it comes down to coaching. Uh, Chris Lazary plays a very loose, he gives his players a long leash. Um, kind of a, a, that, that sort of gambler boat mentality in Saginaw. Uh, I have got a lot of respect for Chris. I think Lias is a tremendous coach. I think he's, he really understands the way that the game is going. But you compare him to the style that's played in, say, Guelph or in Peterborough, and it's it's very different in Saginaw in terms of the way that they approach the game. And they've had a ton of success playing that way. They developed Cole Perfetti a couple of years ago. Uh, obviously, now they've got Mintyukov. So they, they've done a really good job giving talented players room to be talented and so i think that's that's that third piece of it along with both of the things you mentioned some of it's in the dna uh some of it's being a little bit better than everybody else and feeling like you can pull things off and then the third thing is is coaching i think the the one thing you look at and you kind of hear both sides of this sometimes where a really good player playing on a not so great team how much you know, concern is there in that? Sometimes you you hear it from the other side where, oh, well, he was, you know, he's not on a great team, but he carried them and he led the way for them and he was a standout player. But when you're mm-hmm. on a, a, you know, a team that is not going to generate as much offense, you've got one player like that who's given pretty much every opportunity to, to shine. Is there any concerns about that, that if he steps in a better team is not given as much, you know, minutes and offensive freedom that that, you know, could be a concern for him? A little bit, sure. Um I, I, and again, that's another thing where you look at a Peterborough or a Guelph where they just play such tight styles. If he played on Guelph last year, he's he's not a 60-point – he's probably not a 60-point guy on that team, right? Um, so sometimes it comes down to power play reps. It comes down to minutes. It comes down to opportunity. Uh, I think his age would have helped him no matter where he went. He, this wasn't an import who was coming in as a young 17-year-old. It was an import who was coming in as an old 17-year-old and quickly turned 18 uh, so all, all of that plays into it, but there's no question that in a different situation, he doesn't get the same kind of opportunities. And then suddenly we're having a little bit of a different conversation about him. But again, that, that doesn't mean you reduce what he did accomplish in what he was given. Uh, you don't reduce it. it, it he, he still had that season. He still was a 60 point defenseman in the OHL as a draft eligible player and as a rookie in a new league and as an import in a new league. So, uh, a lot going on there that went really well for him, and that's a credit to the way that he played, his talent level, all of that. The so, next so. three picks for the Ducks, when you look at, they hammered down on the Quebec Hockey League, QMJHL, with Gauthier, Warren, and yep. Leno. A few of these guys, like Leno at one point, uh, was early on in the year before the injury, uh, was projected to be a first-round talent. Warren has kind of been all over the place. Uh, if you saw few first round shouts and some as late as kind of second and early third and then Goche again sneaking in kind of late first early second what are your thoughts on, on them kind of hammering down on on Quebec there and drafting these three guys and a little bit of some safer picks here and where do you think they project for for the Ducks 
Well, I think Nathan is kind of that prototypical third line center that every team wants. He is a big, strong kid. I mean, as soon as you see him on the ice, you just notice how much, especially at the junior level, how much bigger and stronger and more athletic and just sort of well-built. He's He looks like an NHLer. He could walk into the Ducks room tomorrow and be one of the younger guys in the gym, which is pretty rare for kids these age. Uh, that's a big part of it for for Nathan he just has the makeup he has the look already and then on top of that he plays fast he can penalty kill he plays that sort of interior style that you'd want a player with that size and strength to play Uh, so there's just a lot there's a lot to like about that sort of package I think my worry if I have one with Nathan is that the game isn't particularly dynamic there's not a lot of finesse to his game he did surprise me at points this year with his ability to sort of make plays and facilitate but he's very much just an around the net cycle uh play in transition with his skating and power kind of player he kind of is what he is uh so i do worry in terms of the range that they drafted him that might just be a little bit too rich for me he was probably more of a sort of 10 picks 15 picks later guy for me but then again, he, he that was the range that, by the consensus, uh, most NHL teams had him. So I was just a, a smidge lower on him, uh, similar with Mintyukov. Like both of those players a lot. I think they're both going to be NHLers. But Nathan is probably not going to be a top six guy. I, I think he'll be a darn good sort of third line center. And if he can be that behind Trevor Zegers and Mason McTavish, then suddenly you've got a good thing going. And I think that was for the Ducks, the mentality. It was, okay, we've got these two guys down the middle. We'll see what happens with Trevor. I think there's, he still may end up on the wing. Uh, but if those are your one, two punch down the, down the middle long-term and, and he's your third guy, then it, it just makes a lot of sense in terms of three very different players, those three in terms of look and the way that they play the game and their style. And that variety, I think is what they were looking for. So uh, a lot to like about Nathan. As for the other two, I mean, big fans of them for very different reasons. I spent uh, some time in Gatineau this season. I uh, actually saw them both play live three times within the same week. I was in Gatineau for a weekend and saw them play twice there. And then the, the uh, CHL All-Star game, uh, or top prospects game, I should say, was in Kitchener that same week. And I drove back from Ottawa and went, went directly to Kitchener to see them play. And uh, got to know Tristan, did a big feature on him and got to know that the history with the injury and how he came up. He was obviously a first overall pick into the QMJHL. So this was a star prospect in minor hockey, uh, very intelligent, hardworking kid. And that's sort of his game. He's got the work, work ethic piece, but he's also just one of the smarter players from this age group. Uh, and really, I would call Luno one of the smartest players in, in this last year's draft in 2022. So uh, very heady, intelligent, sort of efficient uh, player not a lot of flash to him for someone who was a first overall pick into the queue but just plays a, a subtly sort of effective two-way game and I think he's going to be an NHL defenseman he may not be a first pairing guy but I could easily see him as a number four or a number five defenseman a, a sort of second guy on a second pairing or maybe a, more of a leader on a third pairing kind of thing uh, so a, a lot to like and I, and I think he's got more offense too I think we're going to see him have a big year in Gatineau. Gatineau's keen to compete this year. They they wanted to build around this current age group that they have, and next year they're they're looking to push for a QMJHL title. Uh, so I've got a lot of time for for what they've done there, uh, and I think I think you're going to see more offense out of Luno. He's going to sort of thrive on the power play. It'll be nice for him now that he's through the knee injury, just have a full season of playing hockey 
uh, and then you'll have a better sense for what he is. But really liked that pick. He was kind of a fringe first rounder for me, so I liked him in the second round. Uh, and then the last one, Warren. I mean, Warren was was a real story this year. People went to Gatineau early on in the year to watch Antonin Vero, uh and and to watch uh, to watch Luno. And just as the season progressed, uh, it became more and more the the Noah Warren show. He was the guy who leapt out at scouts when they were in to watch the other two kids. So uh, I, I really felt he had a strong season. Uh, he's a very big, athletic, smooth skating kid. The hands and the touch with the puck need some work. Uh, he definitely has a sort of rough around the edges with the puck sort of game, but he can really shoot it. And he started to show some confidence as the year progressed and started to really come into his own and become a a more complete player. But the bread and butter of Warren's game is just the way that he moves, his physicality, his length, his stick, uh, and his play defensively. If he makes it to the NHL, it's going to be sort of as a more of a shutdown guy rather than a two-way guy. Uh, But all three of those guys, I think, have a real opportunity to make it. And if if three of those four kids that we talked about do make it, that's that's a win by today's standards it, it, with, with four picks in the first two rounds. And I would be surprised if three of those four didn't make it. So uh, they, they put, there's something to be said about playing it safe and maybe they don't become stars, but if they can become pieces of the puzzle for you, and if you feel like you've got stars in Owen Zellweger and Jamie Drysdale and Mason McTavish and Trevor Zegris, then maybe maybe playing it safe and, and sort of filling in around the edges is the way to go. It's funny you talked about uh, Luno kind of being you could see him being kind of a, a middle pair two way guy, and me and Eddie talked about this going into the draft, especially after the Fiala trade, where you see Brock Faber get moved and sent to. Minnesota in this draft uh there was a uh, Ryan Chesley I think kind of profiled a little bit similar in that way do you think that the gap between Luno and Chesley as far as upside is as sizable as the drop in picks or is it more of, of question marks about Luno's injury and his recovery from that yeah, they're pretty tight for me. Uh, very different players. Chesley plays a more physical, sort of stand-up defensive game than Luno. Uh, Luno is a, a strong kid and isn't shy physically, but Ch- that's that's really a big piece of Chesley's game is just being a hard-to-play-against player. I, he's not mean or anything, but Chesley's got a little bit more physicality to his game. Uh, Chesley shoots the puck much harder than, than Luno does, so he's got that element offensively that Luno doesn't lack. Luno is scored double digits goals this year he, he's, he can shoot it from the point as well but um Ch- that's certainly the bread and butter of chesley's game and chesley's game is just a more intentional sort of um almost straightforward game whereas there there are layers to to luno's game that chesley's maybe lacks in terms of the smarts and the decision making and uh that piece of the puzzle so uh, very different players but for me right same tier they were both kind of late twenties, early thirties guys for me, kind of all year on my board. Um, obviously the injury certainly played a part in, in Tristan's development. I mean, there's no question he played through a, a cartilage sort of knee issue for two and a half years. Right. So, um, 
it's it's tricky with that because sure. my sense is, and they would never confirm this to me when I spoke to him and his agent. My sense is is that it may be something that does linger even after he's had the procedure. It's it wasn't as it wasn't as simple as an ACL or an MCL tear where you have the surgery, you take six months off, and then in theory you're back at it. The the issue that he had a, the the surgery on was was not an ACL or MCL tear. Um, so th- there are layers still, I think, and it'll be interesting to see whether a year from now, suddenly he's missing games here and there because he's got a sore knee. Uh, but, but by all accounts, he is healthy right now. And, and the procedure was a success and all of that. It's just a little bit of a wonky injury. So, uh, but no, I mean, as far as Chesley and, and Luno and that comp goes very different players, uh, but they really existed in the same range, same kind of projection as far as NHL ceiling goes for me. Yeah, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the 2021 draft and revisit it a little bit and look at some of the, uh, at least the, the top three guys that came from that draft and how they've progressed this year for the Ducks, looking at Mason McTavish, and Olin Zellweger, and Sasha Pastuov. McTavish's year was kind of a whirlwind NHL for nine games, the AHL for a couple, mm-hmm. two OHL teams, Olympic Games, World Juniors. You know, He was all over the place and almost a MM Cup champion as well. What did, what did you see from him this year that he took you know allowed him to take a, a step forward like that? What did you think of the year from him? What what do you think he's going to look like next year if he gets some NHL action? Well, I should say up front, those are three of my favorites. Uh, Mason and Sasha in particular are kids that I actually have a personal relationship with and know quite well them and their families and the people around them I've gotten to know and just big big fans of the kids. Sasha in particular. Uh, forget the hockey piece and I'll, I'll, I can go through all three of them but Sasha in particular is just a wonderful wonderful kid like so easy to cheer for uh, really good head on his shoulders just obsessed about hockey um, so big big fans of all three of those kids that way and I've gotten to know Olin a little bit but those other two know quite well and uh, three of my favorites in the sport but uh, as far as Mason and the steps um They were significant. Mason's always been bigger and stronger, a lot like Gaucher has always just been sort of bigger and stronger than everybody and just sort of did a lot of his damage by willing plays into existence, by driving the net. Uh, His his skills coach, Pat Malloy, often jokes with me that he's just one of those kids who will like break an opposing player's stick to win a battle. That that was just kind of his his modus operandi. very sort of competitive, feisty kid who was pretty heavy set. I mean, you guys will see that when you get to know him, but uh, he used to carry a lot of baby fat around and, and now he's, he's, he just, that's gone. Like I, I saw him at the Memorial cup. I was out in St. John for the Memorial cup and he's just much more sort of that, 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 that weight has transitioned into muscle. And now he's just a menace out there, at least at the junior level. He was like, People just couldn't take the puck off of him. He would shed checks so easily. Uh, and and it, it almost seemed like people were afraid to kind of bump into him or, or try to finish a check on him just because they knew that he might sort of reverse it on them and that suddenly they're on the seat of their pants kind of thing. Uh, but beyond that, which he's always had this year, just the the little finesse skills, the catching bad passes in his feet and the the sort of subtle little saucer passes and skills that he didn't weren't really his bread and butter that I know he has worked very hard on over the last couple of years just were all there. Everything was just so crisp and clean. It wasn't so sort of bull in a China shop kind of 
mentality and he and he can still play that power game and that's going to be a huge part of his game but he also needed to just de- develop a little bit more patience and poise and calmness and sort of uh, finesse to his game feel with the puck to his game so it wasn't so sort of stilted and aggressive all the time and that's what happened so now he's he's as far as I'm concerned he's got it all he also just looked quicker like out of the jump he's creating breakaways and that kind of a thing more consistently uh, so I'm excited. I think there's a chance he's in the Calder conversation next year and has a not a huge season, but I wouldn't be surprised if he scored 20 and 20 or 25 and 20, like 40, 40, 45 points next year, I don't think is out of the question for him. And that's a, that's a darn good NHL player. Right. So um, yeah, excited to see what Mason does with it. And I'm sure we can get to those other two, but I mean, nobody had, nobody in that, in that 2020, 2021 draft class had a better year than Olin Zellweger. So a lot to like. <laughs> yeah, I it's you touched on something with McTavish real quick that I, I've been wanting to talk to someone smarter than me about for a while, and I can't give Eddie all the credit on stuff. So, uh, one of the things that happened after McTavish was drafted is Anaheim fans had a little bit of, I, I would say, eerie deja vu as far as the physical profile uh, being similar to Nick Ritchie, who was a player who had you know burned Anaheim before, and yeah. one things I noticed in that little nine-game stint, Ducks, is that he used his body much more intelligently and, and much more effectively. It wasn't simply, I'm bigger than you and I'm bullying you. It was, I'm bigger than you and I'm using that. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder how much of that comes from him having that year playing against pros. And if you think that helped him kind of, as you were saying, force him to develop that kind of poise and that patience or if you think it's just something that as he got older it just kind of came I think it's both certainly the year professionally helped him uh he did not have I mean as you guys know he played on the on the same team as Brennan Othman uh who's New York Rangers first rounder last year and two very different players that way as well Othman is just kind of the He's got some of that scrappiness to him, but much more underdeveloped physically and very much a, a sort of shot shooting scorer kind of sniper type. And I think Othman struggled. Othman came into his own as things progressed. But what happened with McTavish in the Swiss League, which is frankly a bad professional league, but it's still men. Um, what happened with McTavish was it was almost like a, a switch flipped. And he went from this junior hockey kid who was good the year prior in Peterborough but a lot of people actually felt like he was almost underwhelming, like he should have been much better yeah, as a rookie in Peterborough. Uh, this is obviously the f- a full year before his draft year. And as a consequence, when he came into last year, he was not projected to go third overall. It wasn't right. until he had that big performance at U18 Worlds and he went to Switzerland. It wasn't until that happened and something switched when he started playing against pros uh, and maybe cutting some of that baby fat and all of that. Um that's when things really started to change for him. And and I think part of, yeah, part of that, that sort of maneuvering and using of his body that he developed so that it wasn't bullying all the time, uh, that certainly came. And you could see that coming uh, when he was playing in Switzerland. So uh, that's just a credit to maybe the larger ice over there too, where there, suddenly you've got more space, you get more time to hang onto the puck, you get more time to play that sort of positioning style it's not all in short bursts all the time where you're just pushing mm-hmm. and fighting and fighting and scrapping for pucks. Uh, so that, that game over there probably benefited him that way where it just forced him to sort of 
say, okay, how, how can I use my skills maybe a little bit differently than I did the previous year in Peterborough where I was scoring goals, but I wasn't maybe putting it all together. Yeah. Yeah. He just seems like a force of will player in the clips that I've seen. And I, you know, no question. I've told Eddie that I'm trying so hard to tamper down my expectations because there's so much just that jumps off the screen when you watch the stuff since he's been drafted. Yeah. So, right. yeah, no, I mean, he had a great year. He, he was arguably the best forward after Connor Bedard in, in junior hockey last year. Yeah, you won't argue with that one. <laughs> hope, hope that he, <laughs> that Bedard joins McTavish and Anaheim next year. I know everybody's looking forward to that, but, uh, <laughs> We, we mentioned him. We got to get to him because he had an excellent season too. Olin Zellweger, WHL Defenseman of the Year. I love Nathan Steos, but probably should have won CHL Defenseman of the Year too. Uh, yeah. What What about him that he just took the his game to the next level this year? Like, I know there's concerns about his height and his ability to play defense at the NHL level, but what did you see from him this year that he just kind of exploded just to a, a whole other stratosphere with his game? I mean, he's unbelievable. I think part of it is that age thing. We, uh, we talked about Mintyukov and maybe not having that runway, and maybe maybe we won't see Mintyukov take off in future years like you'd hope because he's already a little bit older. And with, with Zellweger, obviously, it's the opposite, right? He was like Luke Hughes, another player who had one of the best years from last year's draft class, right? It was the, the youngest kids in the draft, Nick Robertson before them. There is, there is a bit of a theme where those really young... 17 year olds those kids who are born in september but be before that september 15th cutoff in their draft year those kids tend to really take advantage of that extra 9 10 11 months that they have and zellweger just did that he just kept getting better and he was brilliant down the stretch and i think he should have been picked higher than where he was picked but uh the the big thing for Olin, and I think what what has to be said, and and sort of if I were banging the drum at a, at a table in a in an NHL front office about Olin, the big thing I would say is that I do not think defensively he has an issue. Uh, he is an excellent skater, one of the best skaters outside of the NHL as far as young defensemen go, and his stick, the way he defends, how competitive he is. Uh, he just takes away time and space. He just glues himself to guys and he just makes it hard on them. And he, he gives them nothing. A lot of what happens with bigger six foot three, six foot four, six foot five defenders is that they tend to give too much because they're worried if they play that tight gap and then suddenly they have to pivot that they might be in trouble. Right? So the beauty of Owen's game is he can play that tight gap. And if a guy beats him or if he gets walked or if he gets spun around, there's that recovery factor too, right? Like he just has the mobility to, to hustle back and, and still be disruptive and poke the puck loose and all of that. So uh, I think defensively, he's going to be just fine. And then offensively, he's not even a super, despite how productive he was, he doesn't even strike me or really anybody. If you ask an NHL scout about him, he's not a super dynamic player with the puck on his stick. It all, it all happens in quick bursts. He's a, he's very much about movement. So it's give and goes and he's, he's sort of walking the line and making a quick pass. And then he's sliding into, into the slot, right? He's not dancing everybody. He's not dangling. He's not Brent Burns or Eric Carlson or um, even Luke or Quinn Hughes. It's just happens in such a controlled way The the whole game is in front of him and everything is, is sort of polished and clean and smooth. But I wouldn't say he's out there 
beating three or four guys to make a play and produce all of that offense that he produces. It just happens almost organically for him. So a uh, huge, huge fan. He's going to be a very good power play quarterback because of the way he operates at the top of the umbrella. He uh, has all of the tools to contribute and transition the puck and just spend so much time on offense that he doesn't have to defend all that much. And then when he does defend, I, I have no issues with the way that he defends. And he actually has things in his arsenal that bigger players would lack defensively. So uh, I think there's a lot of give and take that gets overlooked with those guys. I think it's the same thing is going to happen uh, with Lane Hudson in this year's draft. I think a year or two from now, we're going to be having the same conversation about Lane Hudson that we're now having about Zellweger as far as, oh, of course he's a first rounder, right? Um, and, and Zellweger, no questions asked. You'd redo the draft for 2021 today and Olin Zellweger's a first rounder without blinking. So, uh, yeah, that's just a credit to, to that age piece that I mentioned off the top, but also just to how effortless everything kind of looks for him. He's just such a smart, intelligent, sort of crafty player, uh, and and everything just comes so naturally to him. Yeah, that's that's about as encouraging uh, as uh, as you can get for you know when you're looking at that profile. Because like I, I'm one of those guys who's just like all things being equal, I'll just take the bigger player. But at the end of the day, yeah. skill, you know, is it needs to be the thing that you're putting forward is skill and fit. And, you know, I don't know, all the other stuff as far as like character intangibles, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I we saw this year in Anaheim that Jamie Drysdale was able to use his skating to recover really well or to kind of leverage that to help get him out of situations. And it sounds like that's something that. Olin Zellweger is already doing at a little bit of a higher level in juniors. So that's. Yeah. And that's it's, it's what Samuel Girard does in Colorado. And it's what Jared Spurgeon does, right? Like it's that there are success stories in that sort of five foot 10 range, right? It, it's not like nobody's capable of doing it. There are plenty mm-hmm. of players who are capable of doing it. It just takes the right set of skills. And I think Olin has them. He's a guy that's grown on a lot of Ducks fans over the last year for good reason. Um, the other guy that I quickly want to get your brief thoughts on and then uh, some quick thoughts on Zegris and, and Drysdale before we, we let you go here. But uh, with Sasapastuov opted to not go to the NCAA and play in Notre Dame and went to, to play in Guelph in the OHL last year, do you, how do you think his season went? Did he work on some of the things he needed to work on in terms of skating and, and that? And, and do you think it was still the right decision for him to, to opt to go and play in Guelph? I do think it was the right decision. Yeah, he, he's in good hands under George Burnett. George Burnett is a sort of legend of OHL, of the OHL, uh, an excellent coach. As I kind of alluded to earlier when I spoke about Guelph, uh, a, a more sort of throwback type of coach. George wants everybody to focus on defense first and then you play offense kind of thing, kind of uh, mentality uh, drills down on just sort of playing an honest game, making the right decisions. Uh, he, him and Chris Lazary are not, not alike at all in terms of their, <laughs> their styles. Right. So, um, but in saying that, I think that was beneficial for him. He had just been at the program where he'd been the, he'd been the guy that goes over the boards to create offense. He'd been the guy who'd racked up points. He'd been the leading scorer on the team. He was the guy who got to play around with the puck and do a little bit of everything in his first year at the program. He was a playmaker. And then in his second year at the program, he was a scorer. And, um, I think going to, to somewhere where it's not, a it's not a carnival, right? Like the, the NTDP can feel at times when they're just rolling through teams 
can feel like everything kind of comes too easy for them. And then he went to a Guelph team that wasn't a contender and he had to, he still had to be the guy and he still had to rise to the occasion, but it came with more pressure and it was maybe a little harder. Uh, and I think that was good for him. He was kind of shot out of a cannon. He was great right out of the gate. He had that point streak and he was racking up goals. And then they kind of hit a wall as a team and he kind of hit a bit of a wall with them. And uh, he, he settled probably lower as far as production than he would have expected of himself. I think a lot of people, myself included, expected him to kind of be a 90, maybe not a 100-point guy, but kind of a 90-point guy in that league. And then he was, I forget what his numbers were, but he had like, I think, 76 or 77 points or yeah. something like that, which is still a really strong year. Um, but yeah, just, it just came a little bit harder to him. And now the beauty of him going back there next year is that they're going to be better. They're, they're another team that was young, Cam Allen, uh, their, their sort of top blue liner is top prospect, maybe the number one D prospect for 2023, uh, Danny Jilkin, all those guys, Matt Poitras, uh, Mike, Michael Butchinger, they've got a really good young core of kids from last year's draft. And now he gets to be, he gets to be the leader of that group, and they expect to to win some games. They expect to go on a deep playoff run. I'm not sure whether they'll be a Memorial Cup team. I think they'll have to make some big moves at the deadline to sort of win the OHL title and go to the Memorial Cup. But that's that might be in the cards for them. They might be a team that loads up at the deadline if they're in a good spot and, and tries to go on a run. And I fully expect that him and Danny Zilkin, who had good chemistry on their top line last year, will be together. Uh, just speaking to George a couple of months ago as I was doing some stuff on Zilkin, he kind of was excited about what Danny Zilkin and, and Sasha Pastorjov might look like next year. Uh, and I think he, he really believes in those two kids as being two of the better forwards in the OHL next year. So um, excited to see that excited to see him take that step. And the skating is, is what it is. I don't think he's ever going to be the fastest player on the ice, uh, but everything else, he very competitive kid, extremely intelligent kid can shoot the puck, can handle the puck, can play mate, can play on the perimeter, can get to the inside and finish around the net. Uh, a lot to like the, the skill set is there. It's just, can, can a team trust him? Will he get the right line mates? Will the opportunity come at the right time? He's not a Mason McTavish where things are just going to be given to him. So uh, he's going to have to prove himself every step of the way just because of the skating and some of the perceptions around it. But I think I, I, I think he's going to do it. Like I, I think he's going to find a way with his skill level to become a guy. And I, I do expect that he'll be a 90 to 100 point player in the OHL next year. And, and then you're having a bit of a different conversation. Yeah, about that's him. what you hope for with progression season on season, right? Is that he gets to that that point next year and improves on that. You got a great piece on on him too. So if anybody hasn't checked that out, uh, your piece on kind of his journey and, and his family and everything, it's it's a great read. So everybody has to go check that one out. Um, okay, we'll let you go quick here. I, I want to get very quick thoughts on Zegris's season runner up for the Calder, sixty one points in seventy five games. Just uh, the flashiness, everything you expect from from Trevor Zegris. What would you think of that year from him and the confidence that he showed in, in his first season? Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I do an annual redraft every summer of three, the draft of three years prior. It's kind of a, a pet project of mine where I redraft the first round one to 32 as if I was the GM for each of those teams. And then I review my ranking. And I was sitting down this morning to start on the 2019 redraft. And uh, spoiler alert, because it's not out yet, but uh, you'll be happy to know that I, I had Trevor. I was kind of debating between Trevor and Moritz Sider, second, third after Jack Hughes. I have Jack Hughes first still. 
but I, I ended up slotting Trevor second. And I think that's just a testament to, to just what he means to the game at this point. I mean, he is, if he's not already one of the faces of the league, he's close. And maybe that isn't fully earned because, I mean, he's certainly not a top 20, top 30 player in the league yet. But I just think with who he is, the personality, the gravitas that he already has, the name recognition that he already has league-wide, and, and the skill level, that flair, that creativity, it's, it, there isn't any of that really in the league. There isn't a player who, who really plays like Trevor. He's, he's kind of a unicorn that way a little bit. And uh, very much reminds me of, of kind of, I mean, Henrik Sedin was so understated in his personality. But as far as the, the playmaking, the creativity, the, those sort of little, little moments of genius on the ice, uh, there's really other than Henrik, I think Nicholas Backstrom had some of that in the prime of his career and the way that he play made on the ice and sort of sliced teams up with his ability to pass the puck and all of that. Uh, but really Sadine is that one player that comes to mind, very different personalities, but I think a lot alike as players. And I think Trevor can be that for this league. I think he can be that, that sort of, go-to playmaker that sort of regular on the highlight reel type of player and I, I'm not sure whether he's ever going to be a 9,500 point sort of top 10 in the league in scoring guy but I, I, I do believe that he's going to be an 80 point annual guy and I think the the big difference between whether he'll go from 80 to 90 will be 10 goals because I think the assists are going to come naturally to him and what I was impressed by him last year was pulling the trigger a little bit more and not always hanging on to it to make the pass. And I don't know how many goals he settled with. You guys may know this, but like he was like 23 or 24 goals, if I'm not mistaken last year. And that was, I think really important to me because I think a lot of people had fears that he was always going to be like a 50, 60 assist guy, but that he was only going to score 15, 20 goals. Right. So if he can become a 25 to 30 goal guy, I mean, he's never going to be a 40 goal guy, but if he can become a 25 to 30 goal guy and then he's facilitating, uh, like we all know he's capable of, then, then he's a true star in the league. So I'm excited to, to watch Trevor. I, I think the debate between him and Moritz is a very good one because do you want the, the sort of clever first line, uh, flashy playmaker or do you want the sort of anchored first pairing defenseman and it'll, it'll be a fun debate to watch because I do think Jack Hughes is going to separate himself from those two but it does feel to me like in if you look back at 2019 those two are really the next two as, as good as Cole Caulfield and uh, I think Alex Newhook's going to be great um, go down the list Matt I mean Matt Boldy was tremendous in Minnesota when he came up last year but it does feel like like those three Hughes Hughes Cider and Zegris have really distinguished themselves in that draft. And uh, credit to credit to uh, to Anaheim for taking a not a not a chance, but a bit of a chance on Zegris because there was some apprehension about just how much he had the puck at the junior level and whether players who who have the puck that much can play that way at the next level. And I think what he showed us last year was he's just going to go out there and have fun and do his thing. And he doesn't really give a shit. So uh, (laughs) that part of it is, is just, I mean, I, he's, he's must watch. He, like I said, he might not be the top 30 player in the league yet, but he's certainly top 30 in terms of viewability and, and wanting to tune in to watch him play. So uh, that's that's pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a fun, a lot of fun watching him this year, and it was one of the more unique Calder races, I think, when you got those two types of different types of players with with Zegers and and Cider going up against it. But 
Scott, we appreciate your time coming on, talking the draft and some of the Ducks prospects with us. Uh, anything you want to shout out? I know you got a few new pieces out, the NHL prospect rankings. Uh, any any pieces you want to shout out anybody to, to check out? Yeah, just the big one right now is this week, uh, kind of one of my two or three biggest pieces of every year, which is the, the annual top 50 drafted prospects ranking, which dro- dropped yesterday. So uh, that's a monster for me. And it, it kind of is the divide between one season and the next. I close out the season with it, but it's also the start of, okay, let's let's hit the restart button and start watching these kids all over again. So uh, excited about that and just excited to get out to to Edmonton and, and watch the World Juniors. It's going to feel different. Obviously, there's a lot going on with Hockey Canada up here, and uh, that is a big part of what I'm going to be writing about and covering. And uh, it's just, I mean, that's conversation for a different day, but we, we've got a lot of work to do on, on hockey in this country and uh, fixing it in a lot of ways. So that's that's on front of my mind these days, but I'm also just excited to get back into an NHL arena and, and start a new hockey season as well. So uh, a little bit of a bittersweet tournament for me, but nonetheless looking forward to, to getting back out to Edmonton. And these kids deserve it. They deserve, uh, after having it canceled on them, they deserve to, to pull it off and potentially win a gold medal no matter who you're cheering for. Yeah, like Eddie said, we uh, thank you so much for giving us the time. Uh, if you're open to it, we're going to have to have you back on because your uh, 10 guys who missed your top 100, I fell in love with uh, Josh Nadeau and Liam Steele. So yeah. I, would, I would love to spend you know a couple minutes picking your brain about those guys. I was hoping they were going to end up getting flyers at the end of the round. So uh, I, I think Josh, I mean, yeah, don't want to waste too much of your time here, but I think Josh is uh, going to be one of those kids who's a 40-point player five years from now in college and teams are lining up to, to offer him an NHL deal. So I hope so. That would be great. Yeah. Um, all right, perfect. Well, appreciate it, Scott, again. Uh, rest in peace to your mentions with that article coming out. I know the, the comments get get pretty crazy <laughs> on those ones. But, yeah, once again. Comes with yeah, the territory. Yeah, for, for sure. It's an it's a annual thing at this point. But, again, we appreciate it, and, and thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, Scott.